and welcome to the Interior Design MBA podcast. I'm your host, David Shepard, and my goal is to share with you the most successful and often simplest strategies available to interior designers to improve their bottom lines, find more time to design, and generally enjoy life more by earning what they deserve. Now, let's get started. As I record this podcast, there's economic uncertainty in the air. After two plus years of the pandemic, Enough turmoil has been created to create chaos within supply chains that interior designers and their antecedents, like builders and architects, rely on. One builder reports having waited six months for a simple door that a homeowner had paid him for. Lumber costs are gyrating but largely headed up, adding over $18,000 to the cost of most average-sized newly constructed homes. Interest rates are guaranteed to go up a lot, and mortgage rates have almost doubled in just a few months. Applications for refinance of homes has dropped over 60% in just 30 days. And heaven help us, the yield curve for treasury bills is almost inverted, an almost foolproof indicator of a coming recession. And did I mention Ukraine? Wow. (laughs) Then again, Of the hundreds of interior designers I've worked with, not one was done in by the Great Recession of 2008. Some spent a couple of years treading water, but not one went out of business, unlike companies in so many other industries. Lehman Brothers comes to mind. And during the pandemic, we learned that because people couldn't spend what they often did, we all became cash hoarders. And stuck in our homes, we wore them out and wore out each other as we realized our homes did not serve the two parents and kids at home 24 by 7 lifestyle. And the stock market soared, creating paper wealth for anyone with a 401k or mutual fund, pent-up demand for new homes, yet a historically sharp increase in real estate prices, pent-up savings, yet difficulty finding ways to spend it. The wealthy, often your best customer, only getting wealthier brings us to this question. Is interior design recession-proof? Reminds me of the old saying, fool me once and shame on you. Fool me twice and shame on me. I've lived through a few downturns in my time working with interior designers, including the Great Recession of 2008, and I've learned a few things. Hopefully, you have as well. But just in case, let me tell you a story about my canary in the coal mine before 2008. The canary in the coal mine was a particular member of the coaching network I was running at the time. They were based in southwest Florida, and I think it's useful to understand the degrees of separation that can impact interior design investments. Zero degrees of separation is the point at which an individual decides to make an investment in their primary residence. It's what they live with every day, what becomes aged and dated, and what they benefit most from after major renovations. As you'll hear in a moment, there's every reason to think that a wealthy individual may spend more on their primary residence as the economy weakens, not less. The home sanctuary becomes paramount, and other expenditures, not their homes, become discretionary. Think travel, 
cars, jewels, galas, jets, etc. One degree of separation would be something like a second home. Hang in there, commercial designers. I'll get to you, too. Some very successful designers I've worked with do little other than second homes, but I will argue they are at slightly higher risk than those who focus on primary homes. While it is impossible to properly measure the mindset of potential clients, I think we can agree that they move back and forth across an economic spectrum with the opposite ends labeled supremely confident and slightly terrified. (laughs) As a potential client moves from supremely confident to slightly terrified, they naturally become less inclined to spend on a second degree of separation home. Why not just wait, they might think. A third degree of separation can occur in several ways. First, it can simply be a third house. That doesn't necessarily mean the third house purchased chronologically, but rather the third most important in the owner's mind and the least likely to receive its share of a finite design budget. But even without a third home, there is another form of third degree of separation, and it's the one that's relevant to the firm in Southwest Florida, my canary in the coal mine, just before the 2008 crash. The firm I'm referencing specializes in clubhouse design. The clubhouses are often the central visual element of, say, a golfing community, which means virtually all of the homes in the community are second or third homes, or even further down the pecking order than that. To understand this market, let us imagine a hedge fund manager in Manhattan who has an estimated net worth of $2 billion or so. But as you have no doubt discovered, people don't become wealthy by ignoring the expense side of things. In fact, some of them are the most frustrating line-item nitpickers on the planet. Now, let's suppose this hedge fund manager has a $40 million apartment in New York, a $4.5 million coastal home in Jamestown, Rhode Island, and a $3.2 million home at a place in southwest Florida where he likes to play golf in the wintertime. He just put a cool million into his New York primary residence and completed the renovation on his secondary Rhode Island house only a year ago. He's owned the Florida house for about five years and hasn't used it as much as he thought he would. He's also concerned that the value of his hedge fund has recently declined by 3% due to, quote, economic uncertainty. And he's having to explain that to his investors. On his desk sits a FedEx envelope from the executive director of his golf club in Florida. Inside is a ballot to vote for or against the planned $2.2 million renovation of the clubhouse. These sorts of renovations are critical to remaining competitive, and only by remaining competitive will the members' property values continue to grow. The hedge fund manager's share of the assessment, should the project be approved, is $22,500. He quickly checks the box that says no and tells his secretary to fax it back immediately. It wasn't, you see, that he doesn't have the money. The 22500 is literally pocket change. And it's not that he doesn't understand that if he ever wants to sell the Florida house, he'll wish the clubhouse was top-notch. It's just because, well, because because there's a little more uncertainty in his life now than usual, because it was easy to say no, because he can always change his mind tomorrow, 
because it has absolutely zero impact on him in the short term and none on his daily life. The decision is just too many degrees of separation away from what impacts him every day and what he cares most about. Hey, this is David. I'll get back to the show in just one minute, but I want to ask you a quick question. How would your business and life be improved if you could win just one or two truly major projects each year? Or what I call catching a whale. I actually know the answer to that because I have analyzed the financial statements of hundreds of design firms, from sole practitioners to large companies. And one thing is true. Those that create true wealth over time for their owners always get their fair share of whales. I used that research to find out how they catch those whales and have put the results into a six-week master class for you. This incredible program will show you how to get architects, builders, realtors, and other key influencers in your market to hand you their best design projects on a silver platter all without you having to cold call, market online, or sell. Go to idmba.org today and register for an information session on how to catch a whale. That's idmba.org. Now, back to the show. The call that I got from this firm back in early 2008, telling me that they didn't understand why proposals had stopped coming in, said all of this and more. Within a period of just months, jobs that were in the works for millions had been canceled or put on hold. An iron curtain was slamming shut. The club design niche is one of the most curious and complex I've ever seen. Normally, I say that the primary difference between residential and commercial designers is that the former has clients who spend their own money, while the latter has clients who spend other people's money. The facilities manager at a nursing home or hospital, for example, is not spending his or her own money, even if they're the ones who can approve the budgeted amount. There are exceptions, of course, such as small professional offices, think doctors, lawyers, chiropractors, where the owner may be spending his or her own money. But any large commercial project almost ensures that whoever you're negotiating with is negotiating on behalf of directors, investors, or some other higher power. When those higher powers tighten their own wallets, your quote-unquote client will be looking to you to cut back or perhaps put a project on indefinite hold. But here was a commercial entity that was subject to the budgeting decisions of people spending their own money, the club's members. Which means that in times of economic uncertainty and even in a recession, your safest harbor is to be in the business of selling and tier design services to individual homeowners who are interested in remodeling their own primary residence. New construction is somewhat in limbo on this degrees of separation spectrum, but if a high net worth individual is exchanging one primary residence for another, I would still consider it among one of the safer harbors for you. For commercial designers, the goal is to get as close to the person who's spending their own money as possible. Get close to the wallet. For example, you'd be safer if your boutique hotel prospect was the owner rather than if the project is being funded by an investment group or large corporation. Interior design firms will always suffer from the roller coaster nature of sales with wild swings from year to year. 
This makes it incredibly difficult to commit to the right size firm, meaning to put in place the fixed costs that you need to complete the jobs you expect, yet not so much should things go soft. Is interior design recession-proof? In a strange sort of way, I would argue that it is. You only need a few great clients, and no matter what the economy, even in 2008, a few people at the top are always doing well. Those are the clients you need. And every now and then, you'll need to land a whale, something I define as a client that is four times larger than the average of your top 15 jobs over the last few years. If the average of your top 15 jobs over the past few years is, say, $200,000 all in, then a whale for you is a project of at least 800000 and whales can even be larger than that. Be thankful that as an interior designer, you have a highly diversified clientele. Maybe the travel planner you had as a client isn't doing so well today, but the oil and gas executive is thriving. And when the oil and gas market goes soft, your bankruptcy attorney clients may be doing great. You're like a mutual fund of high net worth prospective clients, and that's a very good place to be. This is David Shepard, and with every episode of this podcast, I will try to simplify your business, improve your bottom line, and make running your business more fun. Be sure and subscribe to the Interior Design MBA podcast at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. You can also find episodes on our website at idmba.org, along with our great courses, including the Interior Design MBA Certification Program. Now, go earn what you deserve. <laughs>